0: The South Carolina Senate refuses to pass the Human Life Protection Act. More information emerges concerning Tucker Carlson's ouster from Fox. All but four Republicans in the House vote for a plan to raise the debt ceiling. And Democrats push an all-electric military vehicle by 2030. This is Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. show thanks for joining us live if that's what you're doing if you uh have gone to the website that's drtonybeam.com drtonybeam.com and you are clicking on the live button hopefully you got me streaming in your ear um you're listening to the program today and if you enjoy it uh i want you to do me a favor i want you to let other people know that the program's available pass the word uh send it out send out an email to your friends uh, word of mouth talk to people uh, text about it um, post the show on Facebook um, sort of I mean just YouTube wherever you're picking it up and and of course talk about the fact that you can get the podcast from Spotify We're still working on additional platforms but right now if you go to Spotify you'll be able to find the podcast with no problem you can listen to it later Thanks for listening again today all right yesterday the South Carolina Senate, took up the Human Life Protection Act again. They took it up Tuesday. They were not able to, uh, well, actually, uh, let me back up. On, on uh, Tuesday, they passed the bill 22 to 21. And I know a lot of people would say, well, aren't we done here? If they pass the bill, that means it goes on to the governor. If it's come over from the House, then what's the big problem? Unless there were substantial changes and there were no amendments made to the bill. Well, the problem is it has to go through third reading. And, of course, third reading took place yesterday, and the plan all along was for the opponents of the bill to take a vote on second reading, knowing that, yeah, they may have enough votes to pass it at second reading, but they don't have enough votes to break a filibuster unless the the passing it at second reading reveals that there are enough votes. And that's that's the whole purpose. I mean, it, it takes 26 votes Um, to break the filibuster, and we had 24 votes, 23 votes, really, because we had one Republican senator that's on military deployment was not available to vote. So we had 23 votes, and that's not enough. You you have to have, in the South Carolina Senate, because of the filibuster rule, you have to have 26. And they debated this bill yesterday, and I'm telling you, um, folks, uh, some of the most vile and terrible things – being said yesterday about life, about protecting life, about the motivation of Republicans, about the motivation of people who are in the grassroots supporting those who want to support life, were made by Republicans. We do not have a Democrat problem in South Carolina. And, I, I, I don't, and, and when I say that, what I mean by it is that Democrats at the moment don't have enough people to stop anything that Republicans want to do. And I'm I'm going to keep pounding away at that point because the the people who vote need to understand that this is not, we are not suffering. We are not refusing to protect life in the womb because Democrats are holding up the process. Now it's true that Democrats filibustered, but it takes Republicans because of the supermajority that Republicans have in the Senate. It takes Republicans voting along with the Democrats to sustain a filibuster to stop a bill from having the opportunity to pass, and that that that's what happened yesterday. We didn't have enough votes. We took the the Senate. When I say we, I'm, I'm talking about Republican leading Republicans in the Senate, took multiple votes to try to shut down the filibuster, and we either came up uh, three short. Or two short, or one—I mean, it, it, it different votes. It was different margins. Uh, well, mostly it was the it was pretty much the three votes that were needed. A couple of times it was a little bit less. But here, here's the here's the the main issue: um, when you don't have the votes to break a filibuster, and you're not willing to stay—that is, to refuse to adjourn the Senate—and in, in order to just keep debating until through attrition enough people leave or they finally give up the ship um, in order to pass a bill, That then it's, it's going to go down. And that's what happened yesterday. Um, there were Republicans who got together and decided, you know what, this is, this is ridiculous. We have over 1,000 abortions a month taking place taking place in South Carolina. We're an abortion destination state. Here we are. We're supposed to be a red state, which is highly questionable. I mean, just because you were elect Republicans doesn't make you conservative. And we're learning that more and more and every day as we watch the legislative process play out in, in South Carolina, uh, particularly in the Senate. Now, it comes down to about six or maybe seven Republicans in the Senate. There are good Republicans in the Senate that are, uh, that are willing to fight, willing to stand firm, willing to, to take the heat. From the liberal Republicans, those that have abandoned Republican principles, uh, there, there are those that are willing to stand and fight, and, and they're, they deserve to continue to serve in the South Carolina Senate. But there are some who have abandoned Republican ideals for the most part, and they should be primaried, they should be challenged, and they should be voted out of office. Now, whether that's going to happen or not, I mean, it's easy for me to say that, but that's hard to achieve because incumbency, as you know, is a strong advantage for those who hold it. And you have to find it's not just a matter of getting anybody to run. You have to find a candidate that can articulate the issues. You have to find somebody who is passionate, who is going to stand for the Republican Party platform and is going to push for it and fight for it, in, in the South Carolina Senate, you have to find somebody with the resources or the ability to raise the resources to run a campaign that can win, and you have to find somebody who can make a, a good, coherent argument that is able to win over enough voters to beat an incumbent. And, and I'm not suggesting in any way that that's an easy task, that that's a, that's a light lift. It's, it's, it's hard, but we have to do it we have to find people to serve in south carolina i know they're here i don't believe that our state as a whole has abandoned its core values we just don't have enough leaders right now in columbia to defend those core values we've got some and the ones that are there who are doing it are standing marvelously but the one the, the problem is there's not enough of them because we have we have 6 republicans that absolutely were not going to bend, they were not going to budge, and they're the same ones that killed any chance of protecting life in the womb beyond the 20, 22-week um, space that we have right now, which has created this situation where we have a 1,000 abortions a month. Um, it's created this situation where we're a destination state for abortion, and they're, they're the same ones that that are have been doing this consistently now for quite a while, um, I mean, I mean, Sandy Sin in Charleston. There's no way uh, that she's ever going to agree to something like the Human Protection Act. Um, Katrina Sheely from Lexington, Tom Davis from Buford, um, um, well, I, and Penryn Gustison from Kershaw, and then Greg Hembery Hembery from uh, the Myrtle Beach area or from uh, down around the coast. I mean, those are, th- those are essentially, and of course, of course, Luke Rankin. Now, Luke Rankin, Luke Rankin is a little bit different in that Luke Rankin's aversion to voting for a filibuster is he won't vote for any filibuster. Um, I don't think Luke Rankin is as philosophically opposed. Uh, to the heart, or rather, to the Human Life Protection Act, say as these other six senators, but he's just made the decision he's not going to vote for any filibuster because there are times when he wants to filibuster, and or sponsor a filibuster, and he thinks it's disrespectful to sit down his colleagues, um, or, or or to to break the filibuster. So um, with that kind of environment in the South Carolina Senate, we're not going to protect life in the womb. And that kicks this issue back over to the House, and the House of Representatives has the Senate passed 6 weeks' ban six-week ban on abortion that they could take up if if that if that bill was to be taken up by the House, it would have to have some amendments because the the bill is uh, very is not is not written very well. Uh, it has some good parts to it but it was—it it looks like a bill that was pieced together. And there are a lot of people that believe that it would run into problems in the South Carolina Supreme Court. Um, and there are people that I respect. I mean, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, like I said. I, I think I've said on this program a lot of times. You know, I went to seminary. I didn't go to uh, law school. Uh, I know a little bit about the law, but not anything compared to the folks that are the lawyers at the Catholic diocese, the lawyers at... South Carolina Citizen, citizens for life, and the lawyers from, of course, from ADF, and all three of those groups, all three of the the attorneys, all of the groups of attorneys for those three groups agree that the heartbeat bill, if it got to the Supreme Court in South Carolina, would face some pretty serious problems and might be ruled unconstitutional, and would be back right where we are now. And that's why the best opportunity we had to pass strong pro life. Um, legislation in South Carolina that went down yesterday in the South Carolina Senate. Now, can the house bill be revived? Can it be, or the Senate bill be revived in the house? Can it, can it be fixed? Can it get passed? I don't have the answer to any of those questions. The only thing I know is this, the number of, of, of abortions are rising in South Carolina dramatically. We're not talking about safe, legal, and rare. Yeah, I mean, that's that old Democrat line. We're talking about abortion as health care. That's the new mantra of progressives. And it is one of the most sick and perverted things I have ever heard in my life, that health care, that a woman's health care depends on the fact that she has a right to kill her baby. Uh, what about the female babies in the womb? I mean, is that health care for a woman? to kill a woman before a baby, before it can has even the chance to become a woman. I mean, th- those are things that make absolutely no sense in the world that we live in and the way that it's structured and the values that people are willing to espouse. You you, you would think that common sense would tell you that the taking of a human life is not a health care issue. There are instances where I could see that it would become a woman's Healthcare care issue, but those are so rare that to describe the entire process as health care for women is insanity. It makes no sense. It isn't logical. It isn't moral. And yet here we are in a place where the illogical, the immoral are ruling the day. And we are in a state where a lot of people in this state are getting up and going to work this morning and they have a certain idea about what it means to live in South Carolina. They have a certain idea about our culture here. They have certain ideas about what they did back in November. They're thinking to themselves, well, we we gave Republicans another seven or eight seats in the South Carolina House. Uh, check. They took care of that. Uh, we strengthened their hand there. We've given the senators uh, plenty of seats. They've got 30 seats in the Senate. That's a super majority. Check did our due diligence there. We reelected a Republican governor who won with by 18% of the vote, one of the biggest margins in decades. Check. We got that done. Uh, we elected with the governor a lieutenant governor who's a Republican, an attorney general who's a Republican by strong numbers. Um, everybody up and down, the any anybody that ran for office on the state level as a Republican got elected. With the of course exception of Clyburn. I mean James Clyburn is a Democrat. he serves in the United States House of Representatives and he will serve until he decides to step down or and retire or um, his his life comes to an end. I mean he's going to be there for life and but every other seat, every other office is occupied by a Republican. And the Republican Party platform is pro-life. It speaks of protecting life in the womb. And we cannot do it in South Carolina with a supermajority in the House and a supermajority in the Senate and a Republican governor. And that should give us pause. It should make us concerned. It could. It should drive us to our knees. And we should be much in prayer about this. Um, I, I don't know, you know... I, a lot of people have weighed in. We've, we've actually had more people weigh in. Pro-life people sort of wake up and weigh in on this, on this issue this time than we have in the past. But there are still a lot of people who are just not paying attention. They may pay attention to the big stories, the big national stories, but when it comes to something that affects us directly here in South Carolina, I mean, today, for example, in, in the South Carolina House, they're going to take up um, a number of bills to expand access to alcohol. Now, folks, I get it. We we live in a cult we're not we're not going back to prohibition. We're not going to go back and tell people they can't they can't drink beer, wine, liquor. I mean, it it's but if you look at the destructive nature of alcohol and you look at the destruction that it brings to innocent people, people on the roadway that die because of drunk drivers, abusive. Relationships and families that are fueled by alcohol, absenteeism on the job, lives being destroyed. I mean, alcohol is a detrimental influence on our country and in our culture, and it's it's something that we tolerate, and it's something that we're not going to step back from. I, I don't misunderstand me, but why? Why is 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 this is the question I don't understand? Why are conservative, supposedly, Republicans pushing things like the expansion of alcohol, alcohol sales on Sunday, expanding that, expanding delivery methods, expanding all these things that makes something that is a destructive force in our world and in our lives and in our culture, our lives and our culture, something that has very can have very bad consequences? Why would we spend an an ordinate amount of time when we have a supermajority in the House and the Senate, and when the I mean, why would we spend our time expanding alcohol? Why would we spend our time figuring out a way to get parimutual betting on horse racing? I mean, is that is that the, is that a pressing issue? Is that the cry of the people of South Carolina? We need to be able to bet on horse racing. We our culture is going away because we can't place a bet down in Camden at the Carolina Cup. I mean I, I I don't understand the priorities. I don't now there are other bills that the house and the senate are wrangling that are good bills, but they're they're not making it to the finish line while bills like the human life protection act can't get a hearing. I mean I I just I have trouble understanding it. I I know the reason. I mean, you have people who ran on certain principles, and they ran on those principles to get elected, but now while they're in office, they're not willing to stand on those principles when the opportunity comes. And the voters in South Carolina have to decide if that's something that they're willing to put up with. And I don't know the answer to that. I wish I could tell you. I wish I could sit here behind this microphone this morning and say, look, the outrage over this is going to be such that there's going to be changes in the Senate that will make the Senate much more conservative. I don't know that that's going to happen. It's going to depend on us. I mean, we are the ones that decide who goes to the Senate. We're the ones who decide who go to the House, who sits in the governor's mansion. And and when we make these decisions and have expectations that are dashed, then we have to ask ourselves, what are we going to do about it? Because we're the only ones that can make the decision about who our leaders are. And I would just encourage you to pray. Pray that God will put it on the heart of our leaders to protect life in the womb. Pray that God will raise up people who have the strength of their convictions. I mean, you know, essentially it came down yesterday to a senator who voted to adjourn Who's not running for re-election next year? I mean, what the the pressure of, you know, well, we, we there are expectations that we've got to get this done. Well, no, not strong enough to keep us from adjourning, not strong enough to keep the Senate in place until we get a bill passed. No, we we need to go home. And if that's the attitude, look, I and I'm not again. I want to be clear because I don't want to be misquoted or misunderstood. There are really fine, good, principled, virtuous leaders in the South Carolina Senate who are doing their best to pass good legislation, and God bless them for it. But there, are a gr- there is a group that is absolutely not going to allow strong pro-life legislation to get through. All right, let's talk a little bit about Tucker Carlson again because there's, a, there's more information coming out every day, and I know a lot of people are interested about, um, about him and why he left Fox and all those things. Um, I, I, he released a video yesterday, which I thought was interesting, um, the things that he had to say. Um, it, you know, it, 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 was, it, it was pretty Tucker Carlson-esque, I guess you could say, and i'm going to play just a little bit of it for you because it gives us some insight into what might be next for tucker carlson
1: when honest people say what's true calmly and without embarrassment they become powerful at the same time the liars who've been trying to silence them shrink and they become weaker that's the iron law of the universe true things prevail where can you still find americans saying true things There aren't many places left, but there are some, and that's enough. As long as you can hear the words,
0: there is hope. Okay, Uh, let let me talk about that for a few minutes because I think it's important um, for us to think about what he just said. The reason I call this show Truth in Politics and Culture is because we live in a world where it's narrative in politics and culture. It's not truth. It's whoever can shout the loudest, whoever has the biggest megaphone, whoever can intimidate or shout down others, are, they're the ones that are establishing what dominates in politics and our culture. And they're, they, they, we're talking about things that are not tethered to the truth. And that's what Tucker Carlson is talking about here. In his video yesterday, he nailed it when he said that people who speak the truth do have power if they continually speak the truth and refuse to back down. I think a lot of Americans are hungry for the truth. I think they want to hear somebody like Tucker Carlson. I mean, I, again, I, I have my disagreements with Tucker, but those, those disagreements don't uh, get in the way of the fact that he's willing to say things that are true and to demonstrate things that are true against the narratives. And the narratives are going to prevail if people who know the truth become unwilling or unable to speak out. And this is what Carlson's talking about. He's talking about that as long as there are people who are willing to speak the truth, then we have hope. When those people go away, or there's not a majority of people that are willing to speak the truth anymore, then the hope dies with those who decide that they just can't, pay the cost of speaking the truth. Now, the truth that I speak is rooted and grounded in something. It's not just things that I believe to be true in the sense that, you know, maybe so, maybe not. The things that I talk about are rooted and grounded in truth that is revealed in God's Word and is sealed in the heart of believers by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's extremely important because, you know, we we end up without an objective standard for truth, and Tucker's talking about the importance of truth, without an objective standard for truth, we end up with my truth, your truth, everybody claiming something is true without anything to stand behind and point to the real truth, the truth, and so there has to be things, there have to be principles, values that are transcendent, that are beyond the, the uh debate. I mean, we talk about those things in the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. These are the things that our constitution, our country, our society were founded on. And we can't even come back to agree about the truth on the very first one, life, and how to protect it. And so it's, it is it is incredible to me that we have fewer and fewer people that are willing to speak speak the truth because of the intimidation that comes against them, because of the vitriol that is thrown at them. I mean, I, I saw this yesterday in the debate, again, in the South Carolina Senate. People bravely, boldly speaking the truth about life and being taken to task over it, it was with things that were just unthinkable to me. So what what are we going to do? What Tucker Tucker is calling people to understand the nature of the battle that we're in. And and I really think, you know, what the reason I wanted to talk about this story today because of the news that's coming out more about why Tucker lost his job, it seems to revolve more around the last speech that he gave at Heritage's at the Heritage Foundation 50th anniversary celebration. And the things he said in that speech were very, I mean, honestly, it did raise eyebrows because of how he talked about the issues. But I want you to hear a little bit of it, too. Now, I played a little bit of it, uh, I guess it was Monday, but I'm going to play a little bit longer section of that speech for Heritage, and I want you to listen to how he's framing the debate, in other words, how he is portraying what's going on in our country, and the nature of the battle, because I think it's important.
1: If you say, well, you know, I think abortion is always bad. Well, I think sometimes it's necessary. That's a debate I'm familiar with. But if you're telling me that abortion is a positive good, what are you saying? Well, you're arguing for child sacrifice, obviously. It's not about, like, oh, a teen, you know, a teen girl gets pregnant, and what do we do about that? And victims of rape, I I get it, of course I understand that, and I have compassion for everyone involved. But when the treasury secretary stands up and says, you know what you can do to help the economy get an abortion? Well, that's like an Aztec principle, actually. There's not a society in history that didn't practice human sacrifice, not one, I checked. Even the Scandinavians, I'm ashamed to say, it wasn't just the Mesoamericans, it was everybody. So like, that's what that is. What's the point of child sacrifice? Well, there's no policy goal entwined with that. No, that's a theological phenomenon. And that's kind of the point I'm making. None of this makes sense in conventional political terms. When people or crowds of people, or the largest crowd of people at all, which is the federal government, the largest human organization in human history, decide that the goal is to destroy things, destruction for its own sake. Hey, let's tear it down. What you're watching is not a political movement. It's evil. Okay.
0: Let's go back to what he just said. What you're watching is not a political movement. It's evil. That's a very controversial statement. And that's one of the things, according to uh, sources that Are beginning to talk at Fox News to some people in the legacy media, that that was the straw that broke the camel's back. That Rupert Murdoch heard this speech, and he wasn't happy with all the, quote, all the spiritual talk, and that he he also didn't like the fact that Carlson framed the ideological battle between progressives and conservatives as a battle between good and evil. But... Here's the thing, for so long, he makes this point at the beginning of the speech and then comes back to it several times, and he lightly referenced it in this segment that I played, the fact that we believe that, and, and I was raised under this, that we believe that, that there are different ideas on how to reach the same outcome. In other words, the difference between conservatives and liberals is what we used to call it. It's now conservatives and progressives. But the difference between them is only the path that we take to get to the end goal, which which is good for humanity, good for the culture, good for the country. We all want the best for the country. We just differ on what the best path is to achieve that. That's no longer true. Tucker's right about that. This is not a, you write your paper, I write my paper, and we see which paper... Uh, garners the most clicks or gets the most supporters, it gets gets the majority of people to raise their hand and say, yeah, I agree with that. That's that's not where we are anymore. because what is the public good of being radically pro-abortion? killing babies in the womb and calling it health care, killing babies in the womb and and actually saying that that's good for the economy that it's good for the country because more women are going to go into the workforce. That's not an ideological argument. That's not a you-write-your-paper-I'll-write-my-paper argument. That is, at its heart, a theological argument because there is no public benefit to the death of a generation of Americans. It's ideologically driven. It's spiritually discerned. And the same thing can be true for the transgender movement. I mean, in what what world can we live in where we believe that young children benefit from radical surgery that changes them for a lifetime, that children benefit from puberty-blocking drugs, that there's a report out today, another report, affirming the fact that puberty-blocking drugs affects the density of bones in minors. What, what public good comes from grown men dressed up as drag queens being sexually explicit and parading in front of children? What public good is achieved by materials that are placed within the reach of minors in public libraries that are pornographic in nature? When a child we, we used to talk about the innocence of childhood. Progressives are destroying that. And to what end? To what public policy end? To what good for the culture end is it when we make these kind of decisions? That's not a political debate. Tucker's right about that. We descend from the political debate. Now, the political debate, and we're going to talk a little bit about it on the show today, is around the debt ceiling, even though there's evil associated with that, I have to say. Because when you look at what's being done to address our debt problem, and, and the debt problem is something that this generation has decided that we're not going to deal with, that we're going to hand it to the next generation. And that's unprecedented in American history. Most of America's history, the generation that currently has control over policy is obsessed with the kind of world that they're building for the next generation. And that They want to make sure that the decisions that we're making today is building a world that our children and our grandchildren can live in that's going to be better than the world that we have today. And yet we don't seem to be motivated by that anymore. We're motivated by buying into this evil argument that abortion is health care. We're buying into this evil argument that somehow it's a positive thing for a minor to have radically altering surgery to their bodies. And it, it, it makes no discernible positive difference in the quality of the culture or the quality of the lives of the people involved. And I, th- that's the only way I know how to frame that is in spiritual terms. It's spiritual warfare. You know, and I'm, I'm reminded of what the Scripture says. I, I sent a passage of Scripture yesterday to some senators, and it was really a, a, some senators that I was that I was actually asking this group of conservative senators, and many of them did, stand. But listen to Paul's words in the letter that he wrote to the church at Ephesus. In chapter six of Ephesians, verses ten through seventeen. Finally, you, that's a powerful word. Finally, Paul's saying, "Let me wrap this up. Let, let let me put a let me put a stake in the ground here for you. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil." having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. What I said to those senators, you're in the right, you are standing for life, persevere and may the lord strengthen you i I would say that to all of you today that are listening to this to this program I would say to you that it's the time has come for us as a people to stand according to the spiritual principles that we've been given in the word of God to persevere to understand that there's nothing wrong with with defending life in the womb it's the right thing to do there's nothing wrong with pushing back against minor children being able being able or being forced in some cases being encouraged being cajoled to make life altering transformations to their body that they can't reverse without incredible pain and and hurt and and a lot of times it doesn't work i mean Where did we get to the point that we're afraid to say that these things are wrong and that there's a right and that the right has to be pursued if we're going to persevere as a culture and as a people? We have to be inspired to be strong and not be intimidated, shouted down, or afraid. And that's I think the most important thing that I could I could say to you today about anything. All right, back to Tucker Carlson here for just a second. $787.5 million, that's the settlement that Fox News paid out to Dominion. A lot of people are saying that's why Tucker's gone, because of all that money. But the truth is that when Tucker left Fox News by firing him, they're costing themselves about that amount. The estimates run as high as $100 million, but in the neighborhood, Hood of three quarters of a billion, I said a hundred million, a billion, but three quarters of a billion to a billion dollars that it could cost Fox because they were willing to get rid of their highest rated host. Um, now, Fox settled the lawsuit before it landed in the courtroom, and there, it's easy to understand why, because there was. A lot of memos, inter-office, inter-office, emails, communications that were going to come out in the in the court. I mean, they were already they were doing jury selection, they were getting ready to start the trial. And Fox said, Nope, we're gonna pay out this incredible amount of money. 787.5 million dollars to keep everybody from seeing the internal strife and to hearing our dirty laundry out in the courtroom. I mean, that was the settlement. They decided that it's going to cost us more in public goodwill among our viewers when all this stuff comes out than the $787.5 million. So that wasn't the reason that Tucker was dismissed. A lot of people say, well, um, it uh, it came about because of the language that Tucker used Um, In some of those things that were uncovered by Dominion. I mean, he said some vulgar things about some of his colleagues, and he said some things that were um, derogatory toward Fox management. Well, then there's all this talk about the fact that Abby Grossman, who's a former booker and uh, producer for Tucker Carlson, filed a lawsuit against Fox because of the hostile work environment that she says that Carlson caused surrounding the show. But what it turns out is that when all that smoke clears, all that speculation moves off the the scene, the truth is that it's likely that all of those things may have played some role, but the thing that Rupert Murdoch could not handle was the fact that Tucker Carlson would talk about spiritual things to the Heritage Foundation, 50th anniversary, and that he would frame the debate between progressives and conservatives as a debate between good and evil. That's, that's what crossed the line. That's the straw that broke the camel's back. And yet, I agree with him. I mean, you there's no other way to describe it. It's, it, it I, I like the way he talked about the fact there's no advantage in policy for minor children getting transgender surgery where where's the policy advantage? Where's the advance of culture in that? Where is it in the death of the unborn? I mean, there's an article at Fox today, and I haven't had a chance to read it. It's an opinion piece, but I'm looking forward to reading it because reading it because it talks about the fact that it when you when you look at a culture that begins to attack its children, that that's that's one of the the marks of Marxism. That's one of the chief aims of dictators they they go after the children not for the not for the good of the of the of the country but for control for the influence that it has over future generations that the narratives that they're putting forth are going to be reinforced by the actions they take against children and i'm looking forward to reading that like i said i haven't i don't, I don't want to comment uh, broadly or even in a narrow way on it until I have a chance to look at it. All right, um, let's talk a little bit about the debt ceiling because yesterday the Congress, the House, passed debts a debt ceiling reduction plan or that is going to allow, I should say, a debt reduction plan that's going to a- allow the debt ceiling to be raised. And the thing about it, I mean, is it good? Well, it's relative, compared to what? It's a good plan compared to the fact that all the Biden administration wants to do is to write a blank check, which is what they've been doing. No regard, no concern for the national debt and what it can do to our economy and what it's going to do to future generations. At least Republicans took a look at that and said, we've got to make start to make responsible decisions. U.S. House of Representatives, this is according to the Daily Signal, On Wednesday, passed the Limit, Save, and Grow Act of 2023 as the debt ceiling debate continues in the nation's capital. Now, it didn't pass by much, 217 to 215. One Republican didn't vote, and four Republicans voted against it. And so that's how you get such a close margin, even though the margins are close in the House. They're not that close unless you have defections or unless somebody doesn't vote. According to the press release, the legislation would specifically, and these are bullet points that are being reported by the Daily Signal, end the era of reckless Washington spending. Well, I'm just going to tell you, that's false. This bill does nothing to end the era of reckless Washington spending. That's a talking point. That's a narrative starter. Because the spending in Washington is going to continue. Now, I'm not trying to be hard on these guys, but come on. You, this is going to reduce the debt by $4.5 No. It's going to reduce the expansion of the debt. It's going to slow the expansion. When you hear the term, we're going to reduce the debt by $4.5 trillion, just tattoo this to your brain. What they're saying is that we're going to reduce the expansion of the debt. We're still going to be facing Fifty trillion plus dollars in debt if we keep spending at the level. But instead of fifty trillion, it'll be instead of being fifty-four and a half trillion, it'll be fifty trillion. So all this is doing this is not doing anything to address the reckless spending that's taking place in Washington, not in a meaningful way. I mean, it could be the tiniest of baby steps, but we're we're in a fiscal crisis here with the national debt. And it's, it's not a time for half measures or pastel colors, as Ronald Reagan said. This is a time for boldness. And while this is bold, I guess, in the sense... That it's pushing back against a Biden administration that has no accountability, no responsibility for the debt. They just want to. They just want a, a blank check. Let's just raise it. What are you talking about? Talking about personal responsibility, fiscal responsibility, the government being concerned about the national debt. We, we, they're not concerned about any of those things at all. They just want to spend what they want to spend. And you need we, those of us who think that there ought to be accountability and responsibility, need to sit down and shut up about it. That's the Biden administration plan. And so I'm going to give Republicans in the House a little bit of leeway in that they at least have thought about this and have a plan. And they understand that in divided government, the way we have it, this is not going anywhere. The Democrats are going to stand in lockstep. Now, maybe Joe Manchin breaks ranks, but it's, it's not going to be enough to get this through because ultimately President Biden will veto it. Now, yeah, let's put the pressure on him. Look, I'm all for that. I'm I'm all for putting the pressure and the spotlight on the radical nature of progressives. We need to highlight that. The American people need to pay attention and to see what's going on. But any hope of this actually getting into law? Very little, if any. Here's the rest of what they say. It reclaims unspent COVID funds. Well, it's about time. I mean, we've got stacks and piles of money sitting around the federal government, and we've got $32 trillion in debt, and we've got COVID money sitting over there that hasn't been spent. Apply that to the debt. Pay it down. defunds Biden's IRS army. Now, that's that's another reason Democrats will never vote for this. Empowering the IRS to go after people that progressives don't like, giving them the tools necessary when they, you know, uh, and, and please remember that during this debate, Republicans tried to amend this section of hiring additional IRS agents to simply say, Democrats were saying, oh, they're not going to go after just everyday people. They're not going to go after just the, the mom and pop businesses there. We're hiring these agents to go after mega corporations that are skirting the tax laws and costing the American people billions of dollars a year. So Republicans said, okay, a group of them got together, wrote an amendment, said this says in the law that they won't go after those people. Let's put it in there. And not a single Democrat voted for it. In fact, they scoffed at it. That's a, They just simply put up a neon sign that said, we are lying about this. Because they refused to take any action that could hold them accountable to their own words. So these IRS agents, I mean, the, the, the there's no way the Democrats are going to give them up. Because this is not... If, if anybody thinks that the main source of these new agents' um, activity is going to be billionaires and millionaires and billionaires, um, it, that's not where the money is. The money is where it's supposed to be in a capitalist society with a constitutional republic form of government. The money's invested in the middle class. That's where the taxes lie. That's where there's not, if you take all of the billionaires and millionaires' money, all of it, it won't pay down the debt. It won't meet our obligations. And then what? Once you take all that they have, you've got nothing else to take. So you have to come after the middle class. You have to come into an area where working-class Americans get hurt by these IRS agents being on the job. That's just a fact. Repeal Green New Deal tax credits. You know this is the these tax credits, and if if you want to pay down the debt, then stop giving breaks to everybody that goes and buys an electric car. You know, or switches in some other way to electricity. One of the things I was going to uh, talk about today, if we have time to get to it, is that. Now, the Biden administration says that all of our military vehicles need to be electric by 2030. How many people think that's a good idea? I mean, think about it. The cold that affects charging efficiency, battery efficiency. We're talking about... We're talking about people that have to be ready to go into any kind of environment to defend the values that we hold. And we think that electric vehicles, we're at the stage already where electric vehicles can provide the, the, uh, a type of punch that's necessary for the United States military to remain the top military force in the world. I mean, how are we going to charge all these vehicles? How, how are we going to—we we, we have to have the infrastructure, the charging infrastructure in place, and how are we going to transport that or establish it, establish it in countries around the world? I mean, maybe they don't want their power grids where the United States is operating to be strained by plugging in all the military vehicles. I mean, Are there advantage to electric? Yes. Is it quieter? Sure. Fewer working, moving parts? Yes. So— You could make the argument that maintenance will be easier on these military uh, vehicles. They'll be able to sneak around because heat signatures are lower. They're harder to detect. They don't make as much noise. I get all that. But the disadvantages, the fact that we don't have an infrastructure that can keep our military rolling, I think that's pretty important. What else is in this? Prohibit President Joe Biden's student loan giveaway to the wealthy well, that's going to be prohibited by the Supreme Court eventually, but that's a good thing to put in there. Strengthen the workforce and reduce childhood poverty. That's a. I'm, I'm sorry, that that's a pie in the sky thing. I mean, I. We, yes, we want to strengthen the workforce, but how is this particular bill going to do that? Uh, I guess by strengthening the work for, workforce, you reduce, reduce childhood poverty because more people have a job and are able to care for their families. Prevent executive overreach and restore Article 1. Hey, if if this bill can do that, I'm all for it, whether it reduces a penny of the debt. Because Article 1, by the way, in case you don't know, Article 1 talks about the legislative branch and what their responsibilities are. And section one just says this, all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States and shall consist of a Senate and a House of Representatives. All legislative powers. The executive branch is not supposed to be out legislating. Neither are the courts. That's supposed to be the executive branch is supposed to make sure that the laws that Congress passes are carried out faithfully. And the courts are supposed to make sure that they fall within the Constitution. And that's not what's what's going on. The executive branch is writing laws, ignoring laws, enforcing some that they agree with, ignoring the ones that they don't, and writing new law through executive orders. I mean, that that is—I just described the Biden administration. But it's also been true for Republican administrations. We've got to get back to the point that— We keep the executive branch in the box that the Constitution put them in. And so if this bill would actually do that, I'm all in favor of it for just that purpose, whether it reduces a dime of the debt or not. The plan includes a, quote, responsible debt limit increase. Now, here's the increase that they're talking about. In exchange for these pro-growth and cost-saving policies, the debt limit would be responsibly lifted through March thirty-first, 2024, that's not responsible. I mean, come on. Just let's just admit what we're doing here. We're trying to get a trade off. We're trying to force the Re- Republicans in the House are trying to force progressives and the Biden administration to give a little bit of a trade off here. It's not responsible to raise the debt ceiling when we're already thirty-two trillion dollars in debt, but to raise it through March thirty-first, twenty twenty-four or by 1.5 trillion whichever occurs sooner and to be transmitted to the ever so robust li- legislative agenda of the United States Senate <laughs> little dig the press release said so we're either going to we're going to say it's going to go we're going to have a, a a blank check through March 31st 2024 or until that blank check gets to 1.5 trillion And that's probably going to be before March the 24th or March the 31st in 2024. Senator Scott Perry, chairman of the conservative House Freedom Caucus, tweeted earlier Wednesday that the act isn't perfect, but it's a huge step in what will be a years-long process in setting America back on track and fixing our financial crisis. I think that's an overstatement. I mean, I I don't think this bill actually does that in any meaningful way it makes improvements. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it doesn't have benefits, but to say things like this is going to get us back on track. No, it's nowhere near radical enough making enough cuts to begin the process of getting us back on track. The White House spoke out against the bill, of course, And on Tuesday, labeled it a reckless attempt to extract extreme concessions as a condition for the United States simply paying the bills it has already incurred. And then it goes on the blah, blah, blah forever. Um, they, they, the White House came out, and this bill stands in stark contrast to the president's vision for the economy. The president's budget invests in America, lowers costs for family, grows the economy, reduces the deficit by nearly $3 trillion by asking the wealthy and large corporations to pay their fair share. What a bunch of hooey. I mean, I like to say this from time to time. There's a Greek word for that, and it's hogwashamai. It's the Biden administration worrying about the economy. If they worried about the economy, they wouldn't have spin us into the inflation that we're in right now. That's hurting American families. EJ Anthony, a research fellow for the regional economics and the center for data analysis at the heritage foundation. I'd like to see his business card. I mean, really, that's a title, uh, weighed in. Of course I've, I'm one to talk. My my title won't fit on a business card either. He weighed in on the legislation ahead of the vote, and this is what he said. Quote, and the, now here comes the truth in politics and culture, and it's coming this time from the Heritage Foundation. The nation's financial trajectory is so perilous that few people seem to understand the radical changes we must make. The Limit, Save, Grow Act of 2023 is the bare minimum to begin turning the ship of state around. Anthony told the Daily Signal in a statement. He said it will save taxpayers $4.8 trillion by slowing the growth of spending, but it still allows spending to grow. That's a true statement. Now, maybe this is the best that we can get in the circumstances that we're in. I mean, I understand that sometimes. I mean, we, we do... We we do have a Democrat Senate and the Republicans are trying to at least rein in a little bit of that spending. But it's you you know, you want to talk about too little too late? It's too little. Whether it's too late or not is yet to be determined. I mean, we just we, we don't know if there's if they're ever gonna take the measures that are necessary to turn the country around and to get us out of this hole that we've dug ourselves. And you know the fact is that we're building the Chinese economy with our debt by spending the way we're spending and by making China one of our major trade partners. The money that's flowing there is building their military, and it's increasing because of our irresponsibility, our own debt here. Pretty good deal for the Chinese, not so much for Americans and their families. All right, that's all the time that we've got for the show today. Um, uh, Tomorrow uh, is going to be what I used to call back-patting day. In other words, I'd tell people on the radio show, reach around, pat yourself on the back because the weekend's finally coming up. But uh, tomorrow we're going to try to come up with some positive stories, talk about some things that are happening that are good. I mean, it's, it's difficult to consider all the challenges that are in front of us, and to think about the weight of those challenges. But so we need to occasionally be reminded that there are good things going on in the world, and that we still have hope. And there's always hope where there's truth. Again, where this this that's where this program comes in. I believe the truth is not a concept. I believe it's a person it's a person of Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth and the life and the only way to come to the father, to come to God, God the creator, God the maker of the universe. We need we need our spiritual lives to be renewed. We need revival. And we're going to talk about some of those things tomorrow as well as other things that are in the news. We can't we can't stop monitoring and talking about the truth in the news. But I don't want. I do want to get some other things out from time to time. A couple of things that you need to know. um, Some of the things that I do. If you're new to this program or listening to the podcast um, from Spotify or watching live online, uh, I serve at North Greenville University as the director of church and community engagement for the Tim Brazier campus. I also do public affairs for the university. Um, I, I serve as the interim pastor at Five Forks Baptist Church in Simpsonville, South Carolina. So I have that responsibility, and I also serve as the director of public policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention. Um, I'm a dad, um, I'm a husband, I'm a grandpa, a papa to my grandchildren, and I love this country. I love what America used to be. What it's become is frightening. Um, We can get back to what we used to be, but it's going to take all of us. It's going to take prayer. It's going to take a move of God. It's going to take us deciding that the truth is, is important enough to stand for in a culture that has decided that truth has no bearing on anything. So and anyway, I hope you'll join me tomorrow for the show, and I hope you'll tell somebody, if you like this program, excuse me, if you like this program, Please tell somebody about it. Tell a neighbor, email somebody, text them. Um, help me promote the show. Um, I'm going to stand for the truth. You can you can take me at my word for that. Um, the things that when you tell somebody else to listen, that's what they're going to get. And I hope that there are people that are interested in that. All right. That Like I said, <laughs> all the time that we have for today, and I'm having trouble landing the plane today for some reason. But anyway, God bless you. I hope you have a great day. I hope you'll join me tomorrow. And please pray for America. Pray for America every day. And remember, no matter what else is true, God is in control.